Assalamualaikum guys, welcome to another episode of the Fairy Podcast. Today's episode is also recorded in Perth and alhamdulillah the opportunity of bringing Sheikh Salman Park on the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode personally because not only does the Sheikh dress well, Alhamdulillah, but also to me personally his Islamic journey is very interesting. So he studied in many places such as South Africa and Qatar and he's also learned from different types of teachings and bringing back all this knowledge to spread in Perth. So in this episode we also spoke about the importance of seeking knowledge, the mannerisms it, it comes with it in, and what you must have while doing so and also taking the good and leaving the bad when learning from multiple sources. Alhamdulillah guys, we also hit 10,000 subs so I just want to say thank you to everyone who's tuned in and supported the podcast over the years and yeah, enjoy the episode. <laughs> Sheikh's already put me on the spot. Subhanallah, what a start. Uh, before we start though, Allahumma Barik, I actually like what you're wearing. I want to know where you, you got the shirt from. My wife does a bit of my uh, fashion choices. So. Oh, okay. Interesting. Online, online. I think it was. Uh, what's that? Uh, what's that website? Swiss. ASOS, no? No, no. One of those. Uh, one's from India. <laughs> Oh, okay. It's a really famous one. So it's just like one of those online shopping uh, ones. Okay. I forgot what it's called. You might have to send it later on, inshallah. Inshallah. All right, Sheikh, welcome to the podcast. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. How are you? Alhamdulillah, fantastic. Alhamdulillah. My first, I would say, proper time in Perth. Yeah. Last time I was about 16, so it doesn't really count. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start with your journey. I think your journey sounds very interesting, very unique, in my opinion. Um, I'd like to know where it started from in terms of wanting to seek knowledge and where the motivation came. I think uh, it would be very, very pertinent to start with my childhood because okay. um, it begins with a little bit of uh, my father's vision. Uh, when he had kids, he, he constantly used to tell us when we were a little bit older that he always used to make this dua that I don't know what I want to do with my kids. Um, I want them to pursue knowledge. I want them to be in the service of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he said, I, didn't, I had no idea as to how to do that myself. So he didn't have any avenues. He didn't have an actual structure in place that he had in mind for us. Mm. But he really thought to himself, well, I just, I'll just defer this to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he always used to constantly make this dua that I don't know what I want to do with my kids. Ya Allah, you take care of them. You nurture them. Um, you bring them up. Um, and that's a dua that uh, he always used to make. And he used to tell us this when we were a little bit older. And from, I guess, that kind of outlook, from that, that thinking... We, I was born in Hobart, by the way, so I was born in Tasmania, and my grandparents moved to Australia in 1979 with my parents, uh, well, with my father. Uh, my mum came later when they got married, but yeah. um, they were in Hobart for a little while. I don't remember anything from Hobart, so yeah. I was around one when we moved to Perth. Okay. And... Growing up, uh, we did a few years here in Perth, and then eventually my father decided to move to Saudi Arabia. So we were there for around seven years, and one of 
the reasons why he moved to Saudi Arabia was for work, obviously that was a mm. primary reason, but his uh, goal was to, was to stay there and to take advantage of the religious opportunities that um, a lot of people have access to in Saudi Arabia. So he got in touch with, with a teacher um, who taught him Tajweed uh, and he imparted that to us at a very young age. It got us connected with, um, with, with a Hiv Madrasa in Saudi Arabia. Mm. And we started memorizing the Quran from around about the age of maybe six, seven, around about that age. Mm. And that was, you can say, our first exposure to, um, well, well, at least having that consciousness that we're doing something for the religion in pursuit of uh, religion and Islam. Um, and I guess that was like my first exposure mm. growing up, so as a, as a young kid. And as we're growing up, obviously at a very young age, you don't really know what is the value of what you're getting and what your parents want for you and, and dream for you and so on. And this is also another thing which I, I think uh, I picked up from my father. Um, he always used to say, make sure you dream big. Dream big and then pursue it. You might not reach where you see yourself or where you dream to be, hmm. but just work towards it and you'll get somewhere. And that was something which um, I think for me now looking back, it is something which is really important in uh, the journeys that we all go through. We should be looking at the big picture and having very big, very grandiose dreams mm. and then work towards them. Work towards them in a very sound, in a very systematic, in a very sensible way, in a very consistent way. Um, and it's, it's really amazing because sometimes like a lot of people come to my father and they say, all four of your kids, mashallah, father, they went overseas, studied Islam and so on. And it's all a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I also think um, a lot of the effort and the vision that my father had, um, he's, he's still not hafid by the way. He's, uh, he has this dream of of actually completing memorization of the Quran. Mm. Uh, at the moment, he's on, I think, his seventh or eighth juz. He's still, he's still, uh, still going strong. I'll make it easy for him. I mean, I mean, and, and, and I think that was my first exposure to uh, religious knowledge. Uh, 14, the age of 14, you could say, is when, uh, 13, I think I, uh, I completed memorization of the Quran. My elder brother finished when he was around 12. At the time, it was something which was quite new, quite novel for the community. Mm. Um, I think he started leading Tarawih prayers the very next year after he completed memorization of the Quran. Mm. So it was, I think it was 12 or 13 uh, when he first led the Tarawih um, as a young kid. And the following year, I completed my memorization and mm. I joined him. Um, around about the same age, 13, 14. I don't remember the exact age, but yeah. it was around about Mashallah. that time. Okay, so let's put this in a timeline. So you're in yeah. Saudi Arabia, basically yeah. most of your childhood. For Up around seven years, you can say. Okay, seven years. and then when it came to becoming an adolescent, becoming an adult, 
and looking towards taking it to the next level, even though there's no next level compared to Quran, but then like as an adult learning, furthering your knowledge, moving abroad from Saudi away from your parents, where did that start? So that was uh, also around about the age of 14, so that's oh, where we left that's off. Very we pick it up. Yeah. Oh so so um, at the time it was uh, finished memorization of the Quran, leading the Tarawih, okay, where to next? Mm. So it was, um, I was around, uh, what age was that? Year nine, year seven, year eight, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I continued with my schooling. So by the time we were, f- I was 14, by the time my brother completed his memorization of the Quran, he was 12, yeah. we had already moved back to Perth. So okay. I completed 12 Jews in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my older brother had completed 18 Jews when we returned back to Perth. Yeah. He completed the rest of his 12, I completed the rest of my 18 uh, while in Perth. And this was uh, you know, with school, along with school. Yeah. And it was something which uh, we, you know, to whatever quality, uh, managed to accomplish this at home. So going to school during the day and then after school hours with your homework and all your other commitments yeah. as, um, as a young student, uh, we would complete our portions of memorization of the Qur'an, your new content, uh, your revision, and then your long-term mm. revision and so on. Uh, we had some sort of a system, um, and one of the things I really, really admire about my father is uh, he's, he's quite organized like that, and he's quite disciplined like that, and, and, and he would maintain that consistency and that discipline as far as, 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 far as making sure that Everything's done. So, 14, that we've completed memorization of the Quran. Mm. And uh, my brothers asked, so what do you want to do? And he was looking at different options at the time. One of the options was Medina University, but it was, I think, to uh, 1990s, mid-1990s, or a little okay. bit after that. And my father had no idea how to get admission, how to, how to lodge an application. So he was doing his kind of scoping, um, what are the seminaries and institutions that are available where if we were to pursue further knowledge, learn Arabic, go through the Sharia sciences and disciplines, um, what are the different institutes that are reputable um, and well-known. And at the time, obviously, names like Al-Azhar or Medina University and other places um, were were well known uh, well known institutions, but at the same time, my father had no idea how to get into them, how to how to pursue that. So, with the little understanding that he had, um, he found a place in South Africa. Hmm. Uh, this was in Johannesburg. It's called Darul Ulum Zakaria, and. For the first year, and this was kind of like a trial, it was very difficult for my mum because she was like, we're sending him all the way to South Africa. And, yeah, um, I can it, imagine. It was a very challenging um, uh, moment for her, decision for her. How long, but, sorry, sorry to cut you, how long was that process in convincing your parents? Because for my parents, like my mum is South African, she's from Johannesburg, okay. she hasn't been back 
till this day. Okay. And till this day, we, like the whole family hasn't visited and there's reasons to it because you hear from the news, you hear from the internet. So things that are happening over there that are pretty dangerous. Yep. So how was it con like convincing your mom? So I guess most of the convincing had to do with my dad and I guess uh, we weren't very privy to the <coughs> conversations. Yeah. But um, I could see, you know, there is um, a bit of hesitation from my mum's side at the time. But on the face of it, like, so for her kids, she put on a strong face and mm. she was like, yes, you're going for good and all of that type of thing. So um, I still wasn't at that stage. I was still at school. My brother was the first one to go. So he went for one year okay. for, for revision of his Quran because I guess um, with memorization of the Quran that we had done at home, it was kind of um, not under the supervision of a Hafiz or a Qadi. Um, or your regular, uh, your regular, your regular hivs classes or duxies and so on. Mm. So it was just at home with my parents. So this was, I guess, the first time, apart from you know the little bit of time that we spent in Saudi Arabia at the Madaris there. This was, I guess, the first time that we're really going out and and we're testing the quality of what what we had done. So we're spending a. a so my elder brother, he spent a year there first okay. uh, and he came back after a year. Mm. Um, everyone's happy and it was, it was like a success and you know, everything's fine, it's safe. Mm. Uh, the institution have, have some good processes in place, they have um, you know, a nice setup. They have many international students from more than 50 countries. Uh, so it was... Um, it was, you can say, the, the first experience of what it was going to be like maybe a year later when we would both go together again. Hmm. So a year later, so this was I think in the year 2000 or 2001, I don't remember, one of the two years. Okay. Uh, my father asked me at the end of year nine, so what do you want to do? Uh, you want to continue school or do you want to follow your brother back to Madrasa. Um, he had decided he wanted to go back and he wanted to pursue a Alim's course, uh, yeah. which spans for seven years. And if I would be going with him, it would be my first year, I'd do the same thing. So I'd do a year of uh, revision of, of my memorization yeah. of the Quran and really make that strong. Yeah. And after that, uh, I'd be free to either come back or continue with my brother. And what age did you make that decision? 14, so I was 14, okay. uh, my older brother was 15-ish. Because I love the fact that your dad gave you the opportunity to make that decision yourself. Because a lot of parents, you see in a lot of the Muslim families, they kind of make decisions for the kids because fair enough, they want the best for their kids. Yeah. They have more experience than the kids, they're, they're very young, you don't know if they will make the right decision, but you're giving them that responsibility that, and Absolutely. showing that you trust it opinion and their decision. Alhamdulillah. So that's, that can really impact you. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, I think there's also a balance there. So like sometimes, like what, I remember a time when um, I had reached Wal Fajr. Okay. So this was much younger. Yeah. I had reached um, memorization of Wal Fajr and I was really struggling. And uh, I went to my dad and I was, I was um, I'd just given up. I was crying. I was like, I don't want to memorize the Quran. And at the time, um, 
he sat me down and he said, yeah, I feel your pain. And like, you know, he, uh, he kind of consoled me and so on. And he sat me down and uh, he gave me what uh, we would be typically calling a lecture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was a conversation, but my ears were open because um, it was a time where I had reached out to him and I've said, you know, um, I don't want to continue memorization of the Qur'an mm. and I really wanted to know what his thoughts were on um, the sentiments that I had expressed to him. And he sat me down and, you know, he told me about the virtues of the Qur'an and the great, uh, the great value of, 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 of what I've achieved so far yeah. and that there's difficulties in life. Um, and, you know, he went through the whole process of, of kind of making me understand. But obviously at that younger age, you're still thinking, uh, yeah, that's all good stuff. It's all cool. But I just want to stop, you know, you're only thinking about your comfort. You're only exactly. thinking about... Exactly. It's getting difficult. It's getting difficult. Mm. So at the end of that conversation, what I do remember was, look, we'll do it as best as you can. So like you move at your own pace. You move at your own pace. Interesting. But he also told me, we'll continue memorization of the Qur'an. Okay. So he made that decision for me. Yeah. But he made it in a way where there was a balance of the decision that he made for me at that age. Mm. And, and between the conveyance of that decision um, with love, with care, yeah. with, with understanding. And I thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he did that. Because it, it is today that, you know, I look back and I wouldn't be able to meet the teachers that I met when I was in South Africa and then later on when I was in Qatar. And the love I have for the Qur'an and for Qira'at and that whole discipline and the sciences, mm. um, I don't think I would have reached that, reached that stage without obviously the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and foremost, but uh, the balance that was instilled in me, in giving me a little bit of, giving me the opportunity to grow in love for the Qur'an, mm. and at the same time for me to be able to understand that sometimes the hard decisions that we don't like, they actually really turn out to be very valuable for us. Mm. So I think, uh, you know, it was a decision that he made very early on. And then as you kind of grow up, you know, um, you kind of see the difference or the shift in the nature of parenting as well. And the dynamics okay. yeah. of, of how as you're growing up, you know, uh, while they're testing your, your ability to make the right decisions and to and to think in a, in a sound way. Sometimes your parents, they make decisions for you when you're younger and when they know that you're at an age where you're not really able to make that decision for yourself mm. uh, and th thinking of your best interests. But later on in life as well, a few years down the line, maybe they'll let you make a decision because now they've kind of understood that, you know, you've reached an age where you're now a little bit more mature, uh, you can understand the value of certain things and uh, you're kind of tried and tested as well as, mm. as you're growing up. So um, what you're saying is correct, yeah. but I think um, at the same time, like at least in my upbringing, there was, there was that balance that I felt growing up 
um, where as you're growing older, there's a bit more autonomy and mm. so on. Yeah, I think creating that balance is powerful. I was even talking to my auntie the other day, and because she has two two young kids, and she talks about the importance of, um, like not in terms of Quran, but in terms of in using the word like haram, because if you start to use it so often that all your kids are going to remember, and they're going to think that Islam doesn't allow this, doesn't allow that, but doesn't, but then they don't actually recognize the beauty of Islam and the wisdom behind all these decisions that were made for this religion. Absolutely. So I and think the balance is very healthy. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, my love will do that as well for the impact you made. Amen, amen. So I want to know, so South Africa, yeah. so how long were you there altogether? Altogether for seven years. MashaAllah. Okay. So it was, uh, the first year was mainly comprised of uh, the health section, yeah. where uh, they connected me with a teacher, uh, and we went through the whole Qur'an uh, quarter by quarter, quarter juz almost every day as new content. Mm. So it was almost like I was doing hiv all over again, okay. except that I, uh, with a consideration that I had done it before. So it was like I was doing hiv but much quicker. Mm. Um, and I say that because uh, I realized when I got there, that the quality of my memorization that um, I had achieved over that six or seven year period at home in Saudi Arabia and then in Perth was um, was not to the standard that is very common in various institutions and seminaries. So it is there that I kind of understood that, okay, look, I'm, I'm kind of re-memorizing the Qur'an here. Hmm. And, uh, you know, to my benefit, I had a very strict teacher, um, and I guess that's that's relative depending on the type of student you yeah, were. Exactly, yeah, it is. Um, but you know, I had a really good teacher. Alhamdulillah, I'm still in contact with him. Obviously, not as much as yeah. I should be, uh, but um, you know, that one year that I spent, which was my first year, that was spent mainly in in understanding that whole culture of of being a student of knowledge, uh, now you're away from your comfort zone. You're mm. not getting all the meals you want every day. You're not able to demand things or you know have everything, um, have all your clothes washed for you and ironed and everything and mm. um, everything on a on a silver platter. Uh, I think I in my first year, the the months that I spent adapting. And, and, and maybe acculturating myself to that new environment had had a lot more learning as far as lifestyle and life skills okay. than it had to do with the hiv aspect. Yes, of course, my main purpose there was to memorize the Qur'an uh, and to revise it over the period of one year. Mm. But uh, I think the main thing over the seven years, obviously, um, obviously growing each year in that, uh, was building independence as a person hmm. uh, and really forming myself as far as how to get along with people, even people that um, uh, are, are in their thinking diametrically opposed to you, in their temperaments, in, in their qualities and so on. How do you get along with people hmm. uh, when you're living with them 24-7 uh, with all these other students? Different as well cultures. As, yes, so it's a boarding school. Yeah, it's boarding school and, and obviously you learn a lot from, from those experiences. <clears throat> and additionally, 
you learn a lot more from those experiences because all of the teachers um, who you're interacting with and engaging with, they're actually on campus. They're within the confines of, okay. of, uh, of the institution. So it's a massive, like, it's, it's a massive setup. Mm. You have your teachers' houses on one end of, of the whole setup and um, you have your classrooms on the other side and then you have uh, um, your boarding and your lodging for students and then okay. you have your so mess uh, where you go and have breakfast, lunch mm. and so on. So um, it was really a great learning experience and it really, really formed um, my, my character, I would say, okay. uh, when I came back and, and how I operate uh, within the community. MashaAllah. So you would say you were about 23 coming out of South Africa? 21. Okay, 21. Yeah. And how was your, I want to say, how was your view of the world and Islam and and giving out knowledge because 21 years old you've memorized the Quran at that time you've acquired a sufficient not sufficient amount a lot of amount of knowledge by such a young age how was your approach to just people's like opinion giving out knowledge and because there are different teaching methods maybe with South Africa or with Medina University or such yeah. other places Absolutely. how was that so it was uh, you could say I was still at a very, you can say, in infancy stage yeah. as far as being able to share, share knowledge, uh, being able to be effective in the community. So at the point of graduation, you could say maybe the final one or two years was really perhaps where uh, I put a lot, of, a lot more effort in than my earlier years okay. at the institution. So my first few years, obviously, as far as my results and grades, they were always really good. Yeah. Uh, but in the final, maybe one or two years, I would say three years, uh, were where you know I really pulled up my socks and I thought to myself, okay, this is something which uh, is really valuable here. And seeing that you know I was three years away from graduation, two years away from mm -hmm. graduation. Um, it was a point where I felt, you know, I really needed to uh, give that last push, a strong push um, in my studies. Now, the good thing is, you know, uh, where we studied, obviously there are different schools uh, and different perspectives um, of, of, you know, studying Islam. So you'll have, you know, within the legal schools perhaps, uh, the main well-known canonical schools that that still exist and that people still uh, and that people still subscribe to, yeah. you know, the Hanafi school, the Maliki school, uh, the Shafi'i school, and the Hanbali school. These four schools are considered um, the types of legal schools which people still follow. Yeah. Right now, of course, obviously, looking at the early history of of legal development, you understand that. Uh, these are only four schools and four streams from amongst a plethora of others that existed at the time, which for whatever reason they, uh, they really went through extinction and all that remains is uh, uh, you know, remnants of, of the schools and perspectives that we still have preserved in our literature, uh, which we still draw from and benefit from. But as far as legal schools, uh, these are the schools that people look up to and respect and follow and subscribe to 
and perhaps throughout our history um, and even studying at the institution we could see because it was a predominantly Hanafi oriented or um, leaning institution yeah. so uh, the vast majority of, of our teachers uh, um, were subscribers of, of the Hanafi school yeah. uh, and we had one or two teachers who were Shafi'i as well so we did a few extra books as Shafi'is okay. um, with some of the Shafi'i teachers mm. in addition to what we were doing um, in, in our normal classes. So we had a few extra classes. I remember Sheikh Abdullah Devla as well, uh, one of my teachers who was not necessarily a classroom teacher. But he was someone who my parents had connected with in the past mm. and because of the lack of um, the rules at the time as well, no mobile phones and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So we used to go uh, and visit his house uh, once a week uh, and speak to my parents at his house using um, the phone, the landline at his house. So he was someone who really picked up. So what he used to do was uh, he used to keep an eye on the students and see, okay, these are some of maybe the Shafi'i students and he, he used to pick out uh, what he felt were some of the intelligent ones or the ones who had um, had some potential. Yeah. And he would offer uh, that, you know, um, why don't you memorize Bulughul Maram with me, uh, which is a collection of ahadith uh, which has been systemized and organized um, in a legal fashion, uh, using uh, using legal chapter headings and so on, and he's organized the collection of ahadith in this way. It's a well-known book, it's a well-known text, um, uh, which has been collected by Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, um, a well-known hadith scholar. So he, um, he would encourage some of the Shafi'i students to memorize that um, outside the class time, so as an extra kind of extracurricular mm. kind of learning uh, learning opportunity with him. So I guess those early experiences um, were leaning more towards um, strong madhab subscription as far as as far as legal orientation uh, and that was something which uh, was kind of instilled very strongly I would say in the institution. So you were either Shafi'i or Hanafi um, and it needed to be uh, like that quite strictly, that subscription yeah. uh, needed to be very disciplined. Uh, so I guess um, those were the teachings that I was exposed to while there. As far as theological schools, so as far as uh, what we would call aqidah schools, yeah. um, what we were exposed to I guess was a bit of a mix. Now obviously as Hanafis, for those of us uh, who are a little bit aware of the Hanafi tradition um, and the Hanafi trajectory, the vast majority of Hanafis would be Maturidi, right? As far as their aqidah. Um, could you sorry? Could you define that in English for some people that don't know the term Maturidi? Okay, so Maturidi um, is is an eponymous term. Eponymous just means it's named after a person. Okay. Right? So, for example, um, there's an Ash'ari school, right, which is named. Um, after a person as well, so that's what we call an eponymous school. Hmm. So we have the Ash'ari schools. So these are just, you can say, systems of interpretation or systems yeah. of 
thinking in as far as um, how they draw from um, the sources of Islam, how they draw from the Quran, how they draw from the Sunnah, and what is the system that they use to interpret uh, the areas of theology, so the areas of, of, of you know belief in God, mm. names of uh, names and the attributes of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, um, you know matters of the unseen, um, and in a sense you can say how literally or how not uh, how not literally um, or how distant away from uh, from strict literalism okay. are they interpreting these texts yeah. so that's that's basically in a nutshell i mean i don't want to go into obviously all of the technical yeah. details but you can say uh the early uh the early i guess um, the early distinction uh, or like the distinction that we can we can make between these theological schools these aqidah schools uh, is that you know they're operating either on the basis of a lot more rationalism okay. or a lot less rationalism. Mm. So, um, in a nutshell, uh, within Sunni Islam at least, yeah. right? We we can divide the theological schools into three broad spectrums. Uh, one is is the uh, is the Athari school or the Hanbali school. Um, or the Salafi school in our times is 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 what it's known as, um, and you have the Ash'ari school and the Maturidi schools, and these two schools, generally speaking, uh, you know, in a broad sense, they're more rationalistic mm. uh, than the Hanbali or the Salafi or the Athari school. Mm. So, as far as uh, the, these theological schools, uh, in a way, we were exposed to all. So, the good thing is that our teachers, especially when we went. Through the six collections of uh, of, of you know hadith, um, which is what we go through cover to cover, and other collections of of of, of you know hadith as well in our final few years, we do go through and we discuss uh, these various theological schools um, and their different opinions on on those tertiary matters and the mm. minutiae of aqidah as well, and we also do discuss. Uh, some of the early opinions and how they developed, uh, you know, later on, and they culminated in a well-known figure of of a person who's considered, uh, you can say, um, the godfather of of the Salafi school or the Athari school, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala. Mm. Uh, so, in our classes, they did discuss um, his views on matters as well. Okay. Um, and of course, in 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 many areas, uh, they would give preponderance um, or preference to the Maturidi school, um, in as far as you know what they view to be the correct position. Um, and we used to go through those discussions. And in a sense, you can say the Athari school, at the very least, in our institution, it wasn't as um, as I would say as dogmatic as you would find in in many other schools mm. um, there was some extent of 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 you know discussion and dialogue yeah. um, uh, more so than other institutions i hear mm. uh, and I, I guess i've experienced as well yeah a little bit of that 
but in that phase you can say graduating from that seven year course um, I had developed a perspective which you could describe as uh, a hardcore Diobandi or a hardcore okay. you know from that perspective yeah. where I was in a sense anti-Salafi yeah um, and I guess that's that's uh, the beginning of phase one of my journey and that's exactly why I asked the question about your seven year course in South Africa because usually people when they do go to South Africa or they are studying in general they stick to one yes in a way so I find it very interesting how you you told me we'll get into it now how you got into you went to Qatar yes and how that impacted your views I guess yes so um, you'd like to know, I guess, a little bit more about of that course. as well. So, after graduation, you could say it is... Once you graduate, you start thinking a bit more maturely. You start thinking a bit more... Um, a bit more about what am I going to do? Now I've reached, I guess, the end of the beginning. Hmm. And I will now be exposed to the community. I will be expected to go back and to serve my community. Uh, and to do work and maybe even to serve as an imam um, or, or whatever other opportunities might be out there. So it was, I guess, at the point of graduation where I thought to myself, um, I really need to get a handle on uh, who I am, what my views are, okay, what's my future. And it is at that point that um, I became a little bit more decisive. Like until that point, I was like, mm. yes, decisive, but you're still young. Uh, you're still kind of hot-headed in it in a sense you're kind of impulsive as well you're just like I can go with the flow um, and I guess one of the appeals of going away going away and studying overseas is just to just to experience life a little bit more yeah just to have a little bit of fun so to speak yeah so I guess my initial motivations for going to South Africa and and, and and, and you know studying Islam was not as strong as it would be after I graduate that's so very that's very interesting why is that? Uh, only because you know I was at, like when I went to South Africa I was kind of at that age where yeah Islam is cool I want to study it and it it, it was something I wanted to do hmm. but it wasn't the only motivation Okay. Uh, the other motivations were, yes, I get to experience life a little bit. Uh, I'm with my brother. I get new friends. Um, you know, you're at that age where you're kind of, uh, you're not thinking in the same way that you would be thinking as, um, as a more decisive adult, as a more mature adult. Mm. So at the point of graduation, which was, I think, uh, the end of 2007 is when I graduated from... Uh, South Africa, from Johannesburg, from Darul yeah. Ulum Zakaria, and it was a little bit before this time. So it was in in my seventh year, where uh, my father consulted me on what I wanted to do after I graduate. You want to uh, you want to come back and do your secular studies, do university? Uh, do you want to get married? Do you want to wait? Uh, do you want to do further Islamic studies? And I think at that time I was very clear about what I wanted to do in my final year in South Africa. Hmm. Uh, I said, I want to get married, 
that's that's the first thing I want to do when I uh, when I uh, when I graduate. Yeah. Uh, and you know, with a little bit of discussion also with my father in as far as how that will work out in as far as you know my ability to support my family and so on hmm. so there was a little bit of discussion there as far as how that could be worked out and alhamdulillah you know um, as far as having that strong that strong support network always even even till now alhamdulillah you know, as far as advice or whatever it is your parents are always there for you uh, your grandparents and you know your immediate relatives yeah. So um, I decided to get married uh, and I decided that after graduation I want to spend a little bit of time at least doing some further studies in Islamic studies um, and to get a taste of um, what it would be like to study uh, maybe outside that bubble of Darul Ulum Zakaria. And uh, one of the options on the table was uh, at the time where my father was working, which was in Qatar, in Doha. Okay. Um, so he was there for almost, uh, I think, I think almost I mean, 20 years, mm. working there for almost 20 years. And I had the opportunity to go where he was staying um, and to find some opportunities there to study one-on-one -on -one or to specialize in certain areas. Um, with some different teachers and so I spent around about one year in Qatar uh, with teachers uh, of a completely different orientation mm. and how was that initially when you got there were you did you have those expectations where like you knew what you were getting yourself not getting yourself into but what you're com coming towards and what you're going to learn yes so um, you know my line of thinking was a little bit like this. So at the point of graduation, you could say I was, um, I was very much Diobandi, kind of anti-Salafi. Yeah. But the reason why I was interested in the other side, so to speak, hmm. and I was ready to entertain and, and be open-minded to that, um, is once again also because of my father. Um, he's been through so like obviously growing up in India um, he's experienced various you know different movements and uh, various kinds of uh, various kinds of orientations of Islam as well uh, my grandfather was very active uh, in the Jamaat Tabligh um, so you know he would go out and um, visit Masajid and so on for weeks on end sometimes uh, so he was involved with that movement uh, yeah. for a very long time alhamdulillah even here in Perth um, and I guess he was he was a pioneer here also so because of my family background uh, I wasn't very very close to the idea hmm. so I thought you know I want to study further I want to specialize further I want to see different teachers and at the time I guess uh, I respected uh, my father's opinions as well hmm. uh, so I guess the teachers that he sought out for me while he was there because obviously he knew the landscape a little bit more and so on uh, he connected me with teachers who were of, of, of the Salafi mindset 
Um, and so I got an opportunity to study with them for almost a year. And how was that process of that year learning from a different aspect? So I know it happened gradually because that's how things happen. Yeah. But gradually I was turned. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine. That's exactly why I want. I want to know details. <laughs> so um, you could say, you know, the more I got into into understanding the thinking, the mindset, uh, the opinions that uh, were really the bedrock of uh, the Salafi understanding of things, as far as their theology, but even as far as you know. Um, you can say, you can say, modern uh, uh, directions that the Salafi movement had taken in far as in as far as their understanding of um, legal perspective as well uh, was something that uh, really gave me a little bit of insight. Uh, and opened me up, you know, to a whole new world of understanding um, Ibn Taymiyyah and other scholars and more modern scholars of the Salafi mm. movement as well. Yeah. Um, it, and so you were there only for a year. Yeah. And so that year, the plan was to come back to Perth eventually and. Yeah. Obviously, spread what you've learned. Yes. I want to know what's going through your mind, like through the seven years of South Africa, one year of Qatar, going through different um, ways of learning and learning, learning the religion, and in terms of what you're moving towards, in a way. Okay, so it's been around 15 years since I've returned back to Perth. Okay, not sure. And the time that I spent in Qatar, you could say, um, because it opened me up to a whole new arena of understanding, uh, reading the books uh, that that many Atharis and Hanbalis, Salafis look up to, uh, reading those books firsthand, uh, I was leaning more towards a very uh, strong Salafi identity at the mm. time. In a sense, I would say. Um, an identity which was very anti my previous phase. Yeah, that's very interesting how you can change so quickly as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know why that happened. I think I was always motivated by uh, what I understood to be the pursuit of truth, whatever that means. Okay. And I was, in a sense, always willing to explore. Uh, very adventurous. <laughs> And leaving Qatar though, and moving back to Perth, yeah. um, gave me the opportunity to be a little bit aloof from my teachers in that direct sense, mm. you know, that direct contact that you have with your teachers and people you look up to and people you respect. Um, it does really rub off on you. Um, and and it should, it should, um, it should shape your character. It should really improve you. Um, it should um, have 
that impact on you. Otherwise, what is the meaning of change? What is the meaning of mm. learning if you're not changing um, as you're coming across new things? Yeah. Right? So, returning back to Perth uh, gave me the opportunity to be a little bit, a little bit, um, a little bit detached from those bubbles and to really interact with the community. And although right at the beginning of uh, my work, when I returned back to Perth, my first maybe one, two years, I was very much influenced by the Salafi mindset in, okay. in my approach to things, in, in my teachings, in, yeah. uh, in the classes that I held, in the decisions that I made even, in the yeah. decisions that I made as far as, as far as community decisions, communal decisions, in as far as who to work with, who not to work with, um, who to collaborate with and not to, um, and so on, and, and how to characterize certain opinions over others, um, and so on. All of these things were shaped in my initial years by uh, the learning that I had done in Qatar. Yeah. Uh, but over time, um, and it was kind of more a, um, a reflexive thing where I'm interacting with the community, I'm reading much more books, I'm, I'm exposing myself to a lot more literature and that's one thing that I really found uh, very, very beneficial. One of the things we were told at our graduation in South Africa was, you're now graduating, but this is not the end. This is just the beginning. You've, you've just received the tools of knowledge. Now your, your actual journey of learning begins. And that really stuck with me. That really stuck with me even after I left, uh, you know, the bubble and the comfort zone of, uh, of just relying on the opinions and the perspectives and the advice of your teachers um, and, and just relying on that completely uh, without having to independently think and to independently experience. Mm. But when I came here, very quickly, um, as I was exposing myself more to the community uh, and more to uh, the scholarly heritage as well, even beyond what I had learned um, in a formal way there in South Africa and in Qatar, um, it really opened my eyes up to many things. Hang on a sec, you guys are not subscribed. I think you guys, before you start the video, make sure you subscribe, turn off the notification bell, and enjoy the rest of the video. Um, and some of those things that it opened my eyes up to was that some of the literature that we have from our great and amazing um, rich heritage of scholarship is quite vast. It's it is something which has a lot of a lot of nuance. It has a lot of a lot of technicality, and it has an amazing amount of sophistication. A level of sophistication that is perhaps very very useful in this complicated world that we live in. Mm. Um, and I only realized that when I was exposing myself more and more and more and more, and I continued to learn. I continued to learn. Uh, through, I guess, in a way on my own, but obviously with teachers, with different people, and, and by networking with, um, uh, I guess, my peers and my colleagues and those people I also look up to, not just locally, 
but also building my networks interstate um, and internationally as well. Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to kind of hear what they have to say and, 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 and really benefit from their experience as well in their communities. Um, and I think that whole... Um, this idea of being very um, strongly associated with a particular understanding or a particular school or a particular movement mm. is um, is a very naive approach to things, yeah. especially as a person who is supposed to be leading the community um, and uh, solving many problems for yeah. the community, so to speak. Mm. Um, I felt that uh, there was a lot in my in my learning journey um, which I was doing wrong at the beginning that's and not easy to admit it's it's not it's not but it is something that we need to do yeah it is something that we all need to do as as people who are involved in different work yeah. right uh, you know imams need to do this uh, you know just Recently, we had a sit-down with uh, Sheikh Sajid Umar, uh, some of the imams and so on. Um, and he was saying something really, really interesting, that a lot of imams and a lot of our ulama and mashayikh, we also need to detox. SubhanAllah. Like, there are, there are many things that we pick up uh, from our learning and that we take for granted. And we kind of, uh, we don't realize these are some of the blind spots that we have mm. uh, and we need to really sit down and be very reflective about um, what we are doing and where we are heading mm. and uh, I guess you know if from that time onwards I've, I've only kind of looked forward mm. um, and you know my understanding now is that the journey of learning will never end, especially when we have such, uh, you know, centuries of um, of amazing things which our scholars have left for us, for us to benefit from, and then to benefit our communities as we yeah. live in the modern world as well. Isn't it interesting when you start to um, dive into certain topics and knowledge in general, whether it's Islam or not, Islamic knowledge, when you dive into it, you start to realize how much you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I know people, let's, let's say for example, I went to Jordan maybe like six years ago and I only went for eight months and you know Arabic wise that's not that much. Yeah. So a lot of people heard I went for eight months, I came back, oh mashallah you probably like memorized Quran, this and that. And yeah. that's their, that's their um, opinion from the outside. Whereas I'm inside and I know what's going on and I realize how small that is. Yeah. in comparison to what else there is to learn. Absolutely. Not to scare people, but then it just shows like, you start to realize the more you learn, how much you don't know and how much you might be wrong. It's, it's really valuable and interesting what you say. Uh, you know, um, I have a, a younger brother, Abdullah. Um, he's someone, uh, he, he's the youngest of the brothers, mm. but he's someone who I really respect and admire. Obviously we have, our informal relationship as well but uh, he's someone I look up to with reverence like you know how like you look up like I look up to my parents with reverence my yeah. my grandparents my teachers with reverence um, I'd conduct myself 
in a in a very respectful way and I'll change my demeanor and so on when they're in my presence and so on. You get what I mean? So it, yeah. it's, it's like uh, that type of reverence I have for my younger brother. I'll tell you why. Uh, like you'd be surprised at the amount of times I have seen someone asking him a question and, and he's like, you know, he's graduated from Medina University as well, he's come back and, and mashallah serving the community in his own way and you'd be surprised at the times he's been asked a question and he'll just say, I don't know, go to someone else. And that leaves someone just confused and because yeah, they expect answers. Very confused and the thing is like sometimes it's the type of questions where like, no, I know you've studied this in your Hanbali textbook, man. What are you talking about? And, and he'd still give a response, I don't know. And, you know, it's really true what uh, the old scholars say. Like, it is from knowledge that you say, I don't know. And, and that's why you'll find, you know, very well-known incidents that have taken place with people like Imam Malik and others as well, where, you know, they were not very shy to say I don't know or to or to show that I'm ignorant I, I, I hesitate to answer this question because I don't have enough insight for me to give you which I am comfortable to stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with and to say that I did this with knowledge hmm. so you know we have these inspirational figures of the past but I think also we have uh, we have people to look up to in our communities who we can see and hear uh, and we can experience uh, the type of conduct. In a way, it's a code of conduct um, and a student of knowledge really needs to uh, have a code of conduct which uh, they adorn themselves with. Um, it is a difficult journey, mm. uh, but... Uh, Yes, it's, it's a learning process and, and a part of that learning process is to understand your limitations mm. and to own up to those limitations as well. It's not the end of the world to say, I don't know or, you know, mm. um, I made a mistake. Um, you make mistakes and in that you also give other people the opportunity to say that, look, we're only human as well, as imams, as mashayikh. Uh, we're human, we make mistakes yeah. and it's, it's okay to be open about those mistakes because then also people will be able to learn that even though in a way they see us as representatives of yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the inheritors of the prophets although they carry that, that huge burden uh, they're able to see that you know uh, the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is much greater than our personalities and our mm. egos. So, Sheikh, what I would like to ask about regarding your journey, I want you to give some advice to someone or people that want to start their journey in knowledge. Let's say living in Australia, because it's not that easy to go overseas and sacrifice a year or so yeah. to learn Arabic or other knowledge. How is it... What advice would you give for people seeking this knowledge with the same, uh, keeping the mindset of understanding there are different schools of thoughts? Yeah. And just, I'll say this as well, what was, I'm starting to realize for Melbourne, my city, um, that our Muslim communities are very multicultural. Yeah. And it is a blessing, of course, but then 
at times you can see that we don't seem to understand our differences and I think that's one thing that can develop over time and I feel like yeah, seeking knowledge is the best way through it. Absolutely. I think you've asked a very loaded question, but I'll try my best to kind of <laughs> Sorry <about that. laughs> uh, organize my thinking in a way. And inshallah, you can help me do that along the way as well. But um, yes, multicultural. We have a very multicultural communities, of course, in Perth as well. Uh, we have a very multicultural community, a growing community. And I think it's more about how we deal with differences and how we view differences rather than the differences themselves. So for example, you know, we see in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, right? O people, we have created you males and females. And we um, have divided you into different factions and different tribes um, and, and you know, different ethnicities. So that you can uh, work to mutually understand each other. Now, uh, one of the things that's really celebrated in the Quran is the difference in languages, the difference in the way we communicate, the difference in cultures. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, you know, He tells us that it is from His signs, um, uh, it, it is from the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, اخْتِلَافُ أَلْسِنَتِكُمْ وَأَلْوَانِكُمْ Right? Uh, your difference in colors, in, in, in skin colors and races and ethnicities and backgrounds uh, and also your languages, right? These are differences which are celebrated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran and are a sign of the creative power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, He tells us these facts and it and it tells us about the, all the different colors and the different stripes and so on. What is the lesson that we learn? One of the lessons that we learn is, of course, that uh, as human beings, with these differences, with these stripes, with uh, the plurality of, of various things, right? as human beings, as Muslims, as those who are committed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the example of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. One of the things that we learn is these differences are there for us to learn, are there for us to understand each other, are there for us to maybe capitalize on these differences in a positive way, and not to make them, uh, not to make them issues that will divide us. And that's why you find, for example, uh, you know, when the Prophet وسلم, he saw the ugly side of tribalism, he said, Innaha muntina. And this was something which, like amongst the Sahaba, there were the Ansar and the Muhajirin, and the labels that were invoked in their opposition to each other, in bringing a friction between each other, was Ansar. Ya lal Muhajirin, Ya lal Ansar. The banner was raised that, you know, all the Ansar get together. But what was the intent? The intent was that all of the Ansar, let's get up and rile up against the Muhajirin. All the, Muhaji, uh, the, the person who made that call, he said, rile up, O Muhajirin, against the Ansar. When initially, these labels, Muhajir, it's a great term, it's a commendable term, it's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful label that was given by the Prophet ﷺ, that was given in the Qur'an. Right? So these labels... 
um, were initially something that was used for good and, and that was praised by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and yet when it was misused the moment it was misused the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he said it's disgusting innaha right so when we understand this when it comes to race and backgrounds and cultures and languages and cuisines and food and so on and as Muslims we do really understand the importance of learning to get along and being mature in our relationships and our engagements when it comes to these issues let us also make that transfer of thought from that and extend that to religious uh, to the religious arena and I'm not saying that you know uh, there are harmful methodologies uh, or, or there aren't harmful methodologies uh, that there aren't areas where you know there will be people and movements who uh, will go to excesses in certain things I'm not saying that all I'm saying is that the differences we have sometimes uh, we need to be able to have at least some trust on the scholarly community in as far as their credentials, their learning, their track record and especially when they tell us that you know um, especially those who are very erudite, very learned um, and very deep in their knowledge and very specialized in their different areas when they come to us and they tell us hey wait a second guys uh, you know these differences in aqidah, these differences in legal issues and law, right? They're not a big deal. Even though, you know, you know, we have a person who's beginning Ramadan, ending Ramadan, having a Eid on this day, uh, you know, with moon sighting, local mm. moon sighting, global sighting, um, calculations, whatever it is, right? When your imams are telling you that, hey guys, it's not a big deal, the only reason why we have these differences, we don't really have a unified government to tell us and to impose that on us. Right? They're telling us, guys, we don't really have a central authority which makes things easier just by universalizing a verdict or an announcement or something like that. We have each masjid on its own and that's what we kind of have to work with. Yeah. And sometimes when those imams and those of experience amongst us uh, that are trying to lead the way, it's important that uh, the masses and the general community uh, who are relying on their leadership, uh, they also learn to follow through with their leaders um, with the advice that they're giving. So uh, in, a, in a sense what I'm saying is, you know, as a student of as a student of knowledge or as a consumer of knowledge also right uh, it's important to not begin on these sectarian lines that you know your approach and your outlook to learning is not that I've already decided who's deviant and who's not your approach to learning is I don't know hmm. and that's why I'm doing this right and uh, uh, on Sahabi Abu Darda radiallahu ta'ala anhu he says something very simple. It, 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 it says this in two words. But it's really something that, that, that needs to sink in. He says, Al-ilmu bit-ta'allum. I'll repeat that again. Al-ilmu bit-ta'allum. Knowledge is by learning. <laughs> it's as simple as this. Yeah. And, you know, 
sometimes the simple is not really enough for us. Sometimes you're like, yeah. you know, I'm going for Umrah, what do I say in the tawaf? Um, yeah, nothing, just make dhikr, recite Quran, uh, not much prescribed. Maybe in the last corner, just say, you know, Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana. We have narrations which say it's, it's, it's you know, recommended to say that uh, in that last corner between the Yemeni corner and the black stone. No, no, but I want something like, like, give me something to say. I want something more sophisticated. Yeah. You know, so that something super that whole details, mindset, yeah. So that whole mindset sometimes of, you know, I needed to be more complicated than, uh, than what you're telling me. Um, sometimes it really pushes us backwards uh, when people like Imam Shafi, ta'ala, he gives us a very simple formula for knowledge. He says, أخي, My brother, you won't be able to attain knowledge except by six things. Let me elaborate on, on those six things. And then he says, ذكاءٌ وحرصٌ واجتهادٌ وبلغةٌ وصحبة أستاذٍ وطول زماني Dhaka'un. You're, you're kind of, uh, you're kind of uh, intellectual aptitude, let's just say, your intelligence. A person who has a particular intellectual aptitude will be able to maintain themselves and sustain themselves through that journey of knowledge. You need a certain mind, a certain kind of mind, because what you're doing, I mean, essentially, as a person who's, who's pursuing knowledge, it's a little bit beyond a person who's a abid and a zahid. And sometimes we mix the two. A person who's praying, a person who's leading the taraweeh, a person who's able to make us cry when they lead the prayer, a person who does a lot of dhikr, right? A person who, who seems to be, you know, very conservative in their approach. Mm. Uh, and they mention Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, Sometimes we mistake these things for actual knowledge, right? And knowledge is not, um, is not zuhd. Yes, it is one of the things that needs to be attached with knowledge. One of the obvious effects of knowledge is action, is, is, is that a person is actually developing themselves as a person, is much more patient, is much more dignified in their conduct, is, is you know, uh, is really improving themselves as a person and is what we would call a role model even in as far as their conduct and as far as their worship as well. And that's why we'll find, for example, you know, a student of knowledge is not a student of knowledge unless he's praying to Hajjud. A student of knowledge is not a student of knowledge unless, you know, they are very much engrossed and very much used to those habits of litanies and afkar, morning, evening afkar. These are the things which are essential for a student of knowledge, um, and, and we're not dismissing that. But what we're saying is, that is not, that is not knowledge itself, right? Actual mm. knowledge is through, you know, is through the collation of data, you draw data, you assess data, um, uh, you, 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 know, you assess uh, the evidence and you do all of these different activities which are involved in the process of knowledge of building yourself um, in understanding what has been revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his word, through the Qur'an 
and the example shown to us by the Prophet ﷺ, which is captured, I guess, in the hadith literature, uh, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is drawn from that. But even beyond that, once you understand uh, revelation itself, the aim of understanding that revelation is to kind of understand uh, the thinking process and the application process of how that works in the real world. Hmm. And, that's, and that's the more difficult part. It is. And, you know, for example, a Hafiz, the person who's memorized the Quran, uh, is not a person who, who is a faqih, who is able to give you uh, solutions to your problems, right? Or is able to give you insight when you're at a roadblock. Hafiz is just that they're able to recite the Quran well, and inshallah, you know, if they've had a really, really good teacher, uh, and they've been a really good student as well, uh, they, you know, they're able to recite the Quran well, and they're able to recite the Quran with, um, with a degree of accuracy that is inspirational and 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 which other people can learn from. Mm. But are these people, uh, you know? very competent such that they're able to give you uh, those complex answers for mm. real world problems yeah i think and people don't distinguish the two yes and and the thing is everyone has a role and we're not we're not saying that you know uh either half or so they've got no use in the world we're not saying that we're saying um, give the right people their due role and a person who's a alim, a person who's a specialist in fiqh, for example, yeah, go to him for fiqh. Mm. A person who's a specialist in aqidah, go to him for aqidah. A person who's a specialist in some area, in, in you know, Islamic finance, for example, um, in you know, into financial dealings, interpersonal dealings, in social issues, you go to them. And you know, you're rarely going to find, especially in today's world, you're rarely going to find uh, a person who's a polymath you're really going to find a person who is an expert uh, in multiple different fields or in all fields. It's impossible. It's impossible. Even from uh, the perspective of religion, right? Even from, uh, even from the perspective of the Shari sciences, you, uh, it will be hard, you'll be hard pressed to find a person who, uh, who has mastered everything. And if someone is making a claim like that, uh, it's it's a very hard claim to make. Mm. It's a very hard claim to make, let's just say. And if a person is making that, uh, like that would be determined by their peers, right? And and you, you'd hardly find a scholar who is respected by various factions of the community that you know uh, only a handful of people around the world who you could say have reached a caliber. In the sciences, in the disciplines of the Quran, yeah. in Hadith, in Fiqh, and in the various sciences, uh, and and we're able to say, you know, they have a good handle on various sciences, such that, you know, uh, they're able to be uh, almost like a universal resource on on various different areas. Yeah. So we kind of really need to understand and take that also into perspective that. Uh, scholarship is something which is, um, which has its niche areas as well. That you might have a alim perhaps 
who has a good grounding in all the different sciences. A good grounding, a basic grounding in yeah. all the different sciences. And then sometimes what they operate as in communities would be just conveyors of knowledge. So what they'll be, what they'll be doing is they, has, they have access to the literature, they're drawing from it, and they're translating it in a way for the benefit of the community and they're giving it out to people. Mm. Right? So they're not the ones who produce the product or they're not the ones who are generating uh, new thoughts, new ideas and pushing the boundaries. All they're doing is they're, they're conveyors of knowledge. Mm. Right? And uh, inshallah they have a role as well. Everyone has a role. But the problem becomes when that role is misplaced, either by the person who is playing that role or by the community uh, who really raises them, uh, raises them to a position uh, which they're not fit to hold. Um, and I think that's where uh, the problem is, but I think yeah. the solution is, is, is quite simple in that we go back to the basics. Hirs is basically just passion, your thirst for knowledge. Yeah. A person who doesn't want something, how will they attain it? Right? So a person needs to keep moving because of their thirst for that thing that they're pursuing. And knowledge is just like that. You're not, you're not going to get a job unless... Uh, you prepare your CV and you go out and, and uh, you know, and, um, and you engage, uh, uh, you know, with different companies who are looking for employees, who are looking to fill a particular role. You're not going to get that job unless yeah. you do that, right? Unless you've got contacts and someone just comes up to you and, you know, but in normal circumstances, it just yeah. doesn't happen. You've got to pursue whatever it is that, that you're aiming for. Hmm. Same thing with knowledge. You need to have a level of passion, a level of drive uh, that keeps you moving um, in the direction of increasing yourself in that. Watch hmm. the hard work. Hard work. You've, you've really got to put the effort in. It's drive. It's very boring work sometimes. Very dry work. But it is something that a person needs to do. If you're going to gain knowledge, you're going to be engaging with a lot of literature. You're going to be, you're going to be reading a lot. You're going to be writing a lot. You're going to be assessing different ideas a lot. Uh, you're going to be doing all of these different things, which is very natural in the pursuit of leave religious knowledge, even worldly knowledge. That is something that is a requirement in worldly knowledge. You won't be a good engineer unless you get through the units mm. um, and you do. Uh, you know your materials unit and your that unit and your this unit and you get through it well those who would just be studying on the final night right before the exam uh, would be miles different in as far as their competency than a person who's really doing it um, on a consistent basis for the whole term and is doing it for the right reasons to really understand the mechanics of things and mm. how all of these things work and um, a person who, uh, like, there's this huge and stark difference worlds apart, right? So the same thing with, with religious knowledge. Uh, a person who has just gotten by and just graduated from Darul Ulum or, or a university, Islamic university somewhere, um, or private classes over a period of time in a structured course. Um, a person who's in those classes, with any class, I mean, we see this all the time. 
there are really good students in a class and really yeah. bad students in a class, and that's that's how it works. Uh, that competency will be determined by uh, the type and the level of work uh, that they will be able to produce once they start operating within the community. And a certain level of autonomy as far as your finances, as far as uh, having the actual ability to go ahead. Um, for example, you know, uh, I remember uh, when we were in South Africa, uh, we had a program, uh, and this was the Qiraat program, Sabah Qiraat. I'm sure you've heard of uh, the reading tradition, the Quranic reading tradition. Um, so, in our fourth year, we had uh, a program which would then qualify you for being a potential uh, student for this program, uh, for the Qiraat program, which wasn't open to all the students. So we had the general alims course, yeah. and we had the Qiraat program, which was done in the fifth and the sixth year. But the decisions were made at the end of the fourth year. And one of the conditions that uh, my teacher, may Allah bless him, uh, uh, a well-known teacher, Qari Ayyub Ishaq, uh, he is like the... Uh, anyone who's done Qiraat in South Africa yeah. has probably learnt it from him. He's, he's got hundreds and thousands of students, yeah. um, even all over the world. Uh, one of the conditions that he would keep, and it was something that he would sometimes, uh, very rarely, he would kind of forego this condition for very specific students. He would make exceptions to this rule. But his general condition was, uh, I won't accept you into this program if you're married. And initially when I heard about this, I was like, what's the relationship between a person being married and uh, being accepted for this program? Like, why this condition of uh, you should you should be a bachelor, right? Mm. For in order to be accepted for this program, and he had other conditions as well. For example, like you know, he had this condition that you had to have um, a personal and a good relationship with uh, with all of your teachers. Uh, you need okay. to uh, be doing well in all of your other subjects. Uh, he had a few of these conditions, but one of these conditions was uh, you cannot be married. And initially, uh, I had the same exact expression as you had. Yeah, I'm being like, confused. Yeah. What's up with that? And eventually, I learned why. Uh, the intensity of that program, because we covered all, all seven qira'at with, um, with each of their narrators. So you know that there's, you know, there's a qira'ah, and then under each qira'ah, you have... Uh, their, their, different, uh, their different readers or their rawis, mm. which is an own independent reading in and of itself. So, for example, you have Imam Nafi' and his reading is represented uh, by, uh, by Imam Qalun and Imam Warsh. Okay? Yeah. So, uh, these, uh, these two narrators uh, were doing all, so like there's seven of these Imams and, and the sub-narrators, each of them have two sub-narrators. So you can say 14 altogether is what, we're kind of, is, is what we're kind of dealing with for that period of two years. And once we started the program, it was really intensive. Like, 
we would literally, for at least the first few months, all the students who were chosen for that, hmm. and we used to work hard, man, like the year before, in order to be accepted, you know, you had to jump through a uh, hundred different hoops uh, to be able to ensure that, you know, um, hopefully I get accepted. Hmm. Um, and then once you get accepted, it just starts, you're, you're in the deep end all of a sudden. For a few months, we were literally staying up until like three o'clock in the morning, one o'clock, uh, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. This is after like your whole day of all your, all your other yeah, yeah. normal classes, right? And you've done all your work after Maghrib as well, you're catching up with all the revision of all your other subjects. Once all of that is done by like 9, 30, 10 o'clock, that's when you start doing your extracurricular work. Hmm. Right, so once we got accepted for the Qira'ah program, we were spending hours almost every night for a few months until we got used to the whole system and then we got more efficient at yeah. it. But it was something which, if you had a family, if you had responsibilities, if you had a wife, if you had children, hmm. it would be very, very difficult for you to keep up with these studies while still fulfilling the rights that your people have upon you. Yeah. And that was the kind of balance. Like I didn't understand the wisdom behind it. It was, it was not necessarily just to protect and to preserve the integrity of um, and the quality of the students that will be produced once they complete the program. It was also to maintain um, you know, that balance in people's life, work-life balance, yeah, study-life balance, as they call it, that, you know, in Islam, we also give that credence um, and that, that due importance to making sure that you fulfill the rights that people have upon you. Yeah. So when you get married, there are responsibilities, there are rights that, uh, that they have upon you. And if you're making them forego those rights, in a sense, uh, you're being oppressive to your family, you're not fulfilling people's rights. Yeah. So it was to maintain that on both sides of the equation, and that's where we get back to it, like you're, yeah. you know, you make sure that, you know, your finances are right, that you're not, you know, that you don't have to get involved in uh, in, 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 in you know, very dodgy situations as far as your finances and, hmm. and your loans and your things like that um, in order to go and study. You need to make sure that all your things are taken care of and uh, your financing is from, is from halal places and so on. And the companionship of a teacher, you connecting yourself up with people who've actually gone through that long process and that long journey themselves already. Mm, that's and, that's, and that's one key thing which I find really surprising to be honest. Like sometimes uh, you come across people who are like, I really like this speaker. And that's great, you know, everyone has, has their preferences and, and uh, their, own, uh, their own kind of inclinations in, in what they like in as yeah. far as the style, in as far as uh, methods of delivery but what I do get shocked with sometimes is how people operate in as far as um, how flimsy they, um, they are with their religion mm. because 
sometimes these are very common sense things. Like, at the very least, a person who you're asking, you're asking your religious questions to, and you're getting uh, your solutions from as far as your halal and haram. Uh, at the very least, I mean, I would, I would think that it's common sense for you to be doing your homework, your background check mm. on, on the person that you're asking. Otherwise, I mean, they might be qualified, I just don't know. Right? So you move on to someone who you trust, who you know uh, they've gone through a qualified process um, in reaching the stage that they are. Uh, it, it, this is someone who I can trust as far as their integrity, as far as the way they conduct themselves. But number two, also in as far as the qualifications for this role. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? So um, it's very surprising for me sometimes where, you know, these days it's, it's quite easy to see the background of someone, a person who's, who's, who's well known in the public circuit, for example. Mm. Um, it's easy to see what are their actual credentials. And once again, when you base the role that they play on the credentials that they have, then things will be much easier. If a person is hafil and not something else, then they play that role. Mm. A person who has more, then they play that role. Right? So, uh, I'm not here to dismiss uh, the, ro uh, the different roles that people have to play because everyone has a role to play. Yeah. Right? Even if you have not studied the religion in a formal way, um, every single person, I believe, can serve Islam. When we see uh, the life of the Prophet ﷺ and their expertise and uh, the contributions on the different Sahaba, this is very, very clear that some of the Sahaba were not engaged in knowledge. They were engaged in, 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 in you know, military strategizing. Right? And they were very good at that. Mm. Right? We have Khalid ibn al-Walid, for example. And you had other people who were experts in knowledge, but even sometimes experts in knowledge in what? The Prophet would, would, would really point out certain people that you, know, you learn Qur'an from Ubay or you learn Qur'an from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud mm. and so on. So you have examples like this where there are people of knowledge even within uh, uh, the generation of the Sahaba, but there were only a few who were kind of authorities when it came to Qur'an. There were only a few uh, as, as authorities when it came to Hadith, for example. There were only a few uh, who were authorities uh, when it came to different things, mm. right? And yet, even though some of them were serving knowledge or were serving in some other way, they all reached high stations with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they all reached acceptance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in, this, in the same way, all we need to do is kind of, in a way, human resources, manage that. Yeah, really exactly. Well. Really need to understand who's good for what. Yeah. And then, um, and then, and then we play those roles also understanding the limitations that we and other mm. people have. Yeah, it's essentially making the most of what we have, the resources we have, like you said, doing your background checks first, yep. and then also taking the opportunity with this multicultural community we live in, both Perth and Melbourne, Yeah, making the most of it, seeking as much knowledge as you can, and yeah, growing together. All right, we could talk all day, Sheikh. Honestly, I, could, I haven't been talking much, and you can tell, but I've been listening to you. That. No, well, it's fine. Honestly, I can listen to you all day. Barakallah but we have to end it there. We just, I just want to ask one more thing where people can possibly reach you or see like classes or things you do. 
So I am on Instagram. Okay. Uh, if you search me up, Salman Parker, uh, you should be able to find we'll me. We'll put that in, inshallah. Uh, I am, was on Facebook. Okay, I think we had that conversation yeah, we did. a while <laughs> back. I recently got suspended for I don't know what. I've been on Facebook for over 10 years and uh, um, I was suspended and I was told it was because I was underage. I had a look at my, uh, oh, well, my actual profile. And my, my, date of, my date of birth is fine. I was reinstated a day later and then I was suspended again. Wallahu alam, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what, um, I'm not a very controversial person. Maybe I think. you can stick to Instagram I'll, then, inshallah. I'll stick to Instagram. Uh, uh, also Masjid al-Rahman, I mean, I guess uh, there's a Facebook page of Masjid al-Rahman. I am the Imam of Masjid al-Rahman, so uh, th I think it's an active page. A little bit less so in the last month because of my lack of access, but I have other admins, inshallah, who... Uh, would be active on the Masjid al Perfect, inshallah. Okay, thank you very much. Barakallah fiqh for today. We, uh, inshallah, we'll get another chance again. Inshallah, definitely. And I really enjoyed it. I really, really appreciate it. Alhamdulillah, barakallah fiqh. May Allah bless you and your family. And inshallah, we'll see you again in Perth. Uh, hopefully, when we visit Melbourne as well. Inshallah, khayyid, inshallah.